The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you every week, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, Inc., is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Also, uh, we, I have a new partner uh, that I'm going to introduce to you today. Uh, known, his pen name is Mexico Mike. It's Mike Kachanovsky. And Mike will be with me uh, in about uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so to, uh, as an introduction. I want to tell you about Mike and what he's doing. He is, uh, technically speaking, very, very uh, competent and uh, knows the exploration business very well. So Mike is uh, actually starting to write a column for me every week, and he has a stock pick of the week. We'll be talking to him later today about his uh, his pick that he made in the first letter uh, last week, um, and uh, a very interesting silver pick. Uh, we also have a special introductory offer for all of our newsletters. You can uh, call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. Also, J. Taylor Media is a, an excellent place to go for everything that I do and my partners do, jaytaylormedia.com. You can also access this radio show very easily through that site. Um, again, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show. You have made it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, its popularity has grown significantly since we started in March of 2009. And, of course, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Prophecy Platinum, American Bonanza Gold, American Manganese, and Rye Patch Gold. This week we are going to talk about one of the most important issues I believe that investors need to focus on, and that is the whole issue of inflation versus deflation, which presents the bigger risk to future investment decisions. That is a very important question because it will make all the difference in the world as to how and what you invest in going forward. Now, I start out with the premise that there will be no soft landing, that we are heading for some very difficult times ahead. 
and that uh, also that the aftermath math of the Lehman Brothers failure was just the start of difficult times ahead. In other words, the first shoe to drop uh, in in what I think is going to be a very difficult time. Many people on our show uh, believe that uh, deflation is the bigger risk, and I can mention some names like Robert Prechter, Bob Hoy, Ian Gordon, a uh, fund manager from Switzerland, a friend of mine, Florian Siegfried, Miss Shedlock, Trace Meyer, uh, maybe we can throw in to that mix um, Kevin Duffy, Bill Matlack, um, possibly Ian uh, McAvity. Um, there's several people that are on the deflation side of the argument, but there's people that are equally uh, certain that uh, our biggest risk is inflation and even hyperinflation. And uh, a hyperinflation advocate is John Williams, who will be one of two major uh, guests today on today's show. Other people on the inflation side that we've had on this show in the past, Ron Paul, James Turk, Rick Mayberry, Jeff Berwick, uh, and as I mentioned, John Williams. Certainly Doug Casey would fall into that uh, camp as well. And by the way, Doug Casey and Rick Rule will be guests on our show next week. Uh, to try to, to, to shed some light on which of these are the bigger risk, uh, the inflation or the deflation uh, issue, well, we're going to have two people to discuss both sides of, of that issue today. As I mentioned in the second hour of today's show, John Williams will be with us, and uh, John has been with us in the past a couple of times. But of the view uh, that deflation is more uh, of what we are facing in the future, we're going to have Gary Schilling. He's the author of a terrific book titled "The Age of Deflation of Deleveraging." I'm sorry, "The Age of Deleveraging." He's going to be joining me uh, at about 3:30 this afternoon. So. I hope you'll stick around to hear what Dr. Schilling has. Both of these are very honest, independent-thinking economists who have stuck to their guns even when it was not the most popular thing to do in the short run for their careers. Uh, so we can look forward to two people with opposing points of view, uh, two men that are with great integrity uh, that I think can shed some light and help us understand, um, understand the risks inherent on, on either outcome. One thing, as I said earlier, that I am convinced of uh, is that um, is that there will not be a soft landing. And why can't we have a soft landing? Well, I believe we can't have a soft landing simply because, uh, and we can't grow our way out of problems, simply because of the enormous amount of indebtedness that has uh, cropped up, especially since 1971 when the United States began to engage in a very in a period of what I term financial promiscuity, and I think the window was opened uh, for financial promiscuity on August fifteenth, nineteen seventy one, when Richard Nixon closed the gold window. Nixon, in effect, caused the United States to default on its obligation to exchange one ounce of gold for every thirty five dollars in paper money that was presented to the U.S. Treasury by foreign central banks. In my view, the detachment of the dollar. Uh, from gold in 1971, not Watergate, makes Richard Nixon the worst president in my lifetime because it set the stage for the massive financial mess that we are in today. Uh, it was the detachment of the dollar from gold that made possible the explosive growth in debt that has now put the Western world in such dire straits. And in my view, whether you lean towards the inflation argument or the deflation argument, you do need to own some gold in one form or another. Uh, if you believe in inflation, then you want to own tangible assets uh, of all kinds, including precious metals. 
if you lean towards a deflation argument, then commodities and other tangibles might not, might not or probably won't be a very good place to invest. And uh, they will be, though, however, history proves this out, a very good place for gold mining investing. Uh, and gold mining companies have done the best during major periods of deflation, uh, interestingly enough, uh, probably contrary to what most people believe. Um, Dr. Gary Schilling uh, believes that we're in for price declines of 2 and 3% annually over the next several years. Uh, Dr. Schilling, who, is, uh, who manages money, is agnostic with respect to gold. He doesn't have an opinion on gold, so we won't be talking to him about that. We have plenty of other people who have said a lot and more than enough about gold and will continue to have on this show. However, Dr. Schilling does have some excellent investment ideas for the kind of economic environment that he foresees. Whether you agree with him or not, one thing you have to say is that he has been an excellent forecaster with respect to forecasting major bubbles and we will talk to him about some of his great forecasts in the past. Uh, John Williams, who is equally as confident that we are heading for a hyperinflation, does, of course, believe in owning precious metals. And I must confess, though, with respect to the inflation-deflation argument, that I do lean towards deflation. One thing I'm watching, though, very carefully, uh, is the U.S. dollar index. And I would be concerned if we saw a drop below 7138, 71.38, a sustained drop, I think uh, that seems to be sort of a, uh, a line in the sand. And technically speaking, if we went um, below that level, I think I would become very concerned. Uh, we will also be talking, as I said, um, uh, Mexico Mike is going to be with me in just a couple of seconds. In the second uh, hour today, also I'm going to be talking to Amir Adnani, who was chosen by Doug Casey as one of the up-and-coming CEOs in the resource sector. Amir uh, will talk to us about uh, his new Brazilian Resources, it's a gold mining exploration company, we're probably also asking something about uranium energy. But we have a very, school, a very very full and exciting schedule today, so let's get right to it. We're going to go to, to a commercial break, and as soon as we come back, we will introduce to you Mexico Mike. Don't go away, we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Mike Kachanovsky, uh, also known uh, in the newsletter writing industry and uh, on the Internet as Mexico Mike. And, well, he has uh, been following the resource sector for some time, and uh, I recently made a trip with, uh, with Mike uh, to visit uh, a property in Nevada and uh, had a, a good chance to talk with him, sat opposite him on a small aircraft flying from Las Vegas over to the uh, over to the eastern side of the state and I got to know Mike uh, quite well talking to him about his investing philosophy about his macroeconomic views uh and then what I really impressed me was his uh his knowledge his technical knowledge of the exploration sector you know be able to sense uh, what is the potential for something major to be discovered is not something that comes naturally and people like Mike are, are fairly far and few between. Uh, a lot of Canadians seem to understand this industry better than than uh, a lot of Americans. But in any event, uh, Mike is with me. He is now going to be writing a column for my newsletter uh, every week, um, and he's going to have a stock pick of the week. So, really good to have you, Mike. Welcome. Oh, hi, Jay. Good to be here. Good afternoon. Yep. Really, really good to have you. That you. 
how long have you been res- uh, researching and investing in resource uh, stocks? I guess back in the late 90s is when I first got really excited about uh, mining stocks, oil and gas stocks, anything resource-oriented. And the thing that attracts me to the whole sector is that you can understand the balance sheet. You can pretty much see where the money is going and how these companies make their money, and you don't really have to have an advanced degree in, in accounting in order to evaluate whether or not it's a, a kind of company that you can uh, make money on. And uh, that's what I like about the sector. Yeah, it's it's certainly true that when you get to the larger companies, the con- the accounting, uh, the accounting policies and and techniques are very very complex and require an awful lot of effort. And most of these companies are very straightforward. But also, Mike, you you have um, you, you know really have a good sense, I believe, in terms of uh, in terms of being able to sort of game or or in your own mind and also uh, your ability to tell others. To give some sense of what the potential is for finding something big. That said, of course, it's a high risk, high return game. But the technical side, too. I mean, you have spent a lot of time in understanding exploration technology, understanding geology, and, and sort of getting a sense of whether, you know, a company represents good value, you know, related to its, the probability of success relative to its price, right? Well, That's what you look I, at. I guess what it comes down to is you have to have a real understanding of all the little details that can go right or wrong yeah. for, for a startup mining company and then and factor in some sort of a, a guesstimate, for lack of a better word, on, on how much any of these individual items will come back to, uh, to have an outcome on the final whether or not it makes money. Right and and little things that you're going to come across when you're when you're touring a mine operation, you're talking to the people who do this for a living and who really know their way around a processing plant or who really understand geology and metallurgy and all of the different things that could uh, make or break a company. And as you spend more time and talk to more of these people, you start to appreciate uh, just which of these uh, projects you're looking at have a chance to make money, and which of them are just more of a marketable story that. Uh, are probably not going to be long-term successful investments. Right. Yeah, sort of uh, the, the first drill hole that can be spectacular or a drill hole that can be spectacular can lead or mislead investors who aren't really uh, able to sort of see the bigger picture into putting their money into, a, into something that isn't likely to work out. So, well, uh, that, we'll get into some of the details of different companies, I'm sure, as we go along. And one of the companies, the first company that you picked as your stock pick of the week for my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, last week was Impact Silver. Tell us uh, about Impact Silver and why you like that one. Well, I've been around Impact Silver for a long time, probably about six or seven years since I first uh, heard about the stock and did some research and, and bought my position, my first position in the company. And so I've watched it start as a concept play to the point where they were one of the first movers in Mexico uh, to, to buy an asset up that actually had uh, production and, uh, and and carry the ball right through development to the point of where they're at today. Um, I'm very comfortable with the management. It's been the, the same team that have been running the company since day one. Um, their guidance that they've issued over the years has been accurate and understated, if anything. They're very conservative in terms of uh, what they communicate, and then they, they go out and, and actually achieve and overachieve what they, uh, what they say they're going to try to do. Um, they've been very tight in terms of managing money, 
Um, they're still aggressive in terms of uh, achieving uh, uh, production uh, and 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 uh, growth targets, mm-hmm. but they're very careful in how they manage the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, their balance sheet has been very solid. They don't take on a lot of debt, and uh, they don't issue a lot of stock. Mm-hmm. And these are all things that, uh, over the long term, are are the kind of uh, fundamentals that I look for mm-hmm. in a mining company. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, uh, they've got leverage to the right metals. Uh, they've got a very strong cash position on the balance sheet. They've got superb assets under management that have uh, all kinds of exploration and, and growth and production opportunities that they can grow in-house. Uh, they own 100% of their their core properties. Uh, there's no underlying uh, third-party royalty that's payable. Uh, they control their entire district that they're operating in. And that's very important as well. They don't have to worry about encroachment from other companies that are uh, active mining nearby, or perhaps they discover a large ore body that extends beyond the limits of their property holdings, and then uh, they don't have the full leverage to their discovery. So by having 100% of a huge property area, they pretty much control their own destiny. Mm-hmm. And they've also demonstrated over several years of operation that they know how to wring the max- maximum efficiency level out mm-hmm. of their operations. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a, it's a core concept that I think a lot of investors either don't understand or, or, or don't appreciate, uh, that if you're running a mine, you have to, every single day, get the maximum level of efficiency from your operations mm-hmm. in order to make money in this business. And Mike, let me ask you, we only have about a minute left, what is the, uh, what is the symbol for Impact Silver and what's it selling at? Uh, Impact Silver trades on the uh, Canadian Venture Exchange, and the symbol is uh, IPT. Mm-hmm. And uh, its trading range is around a dollar seventy-five or so today. Mm-hmm. And it's actually worth noting that uh, both gold and silver are, are performing very strong today. They're both up sharply on the day, but the main index of uh, junior mining stocks, the Huey, is uh, down on the day. It's trading in the red, yeah. and uh, most of the mining uh, companies are actually lower today. Yeah, so there's a bit of divergence enough. going on in the market. Yeah. Well, we we talk about the value of these gold mining companies, the cash flow from the producers and the silver mining companies as well. You do have, uh, with just a few seconds left here, you do have a pick for next week in mind. Uh, you want to give our listeners just a little sense of what kind of company you're you're going to be talking about in my newsletter this weekend. Sure. I've got quite a number of stocks that I'm tracking that I think are great candidates to uh, present in your newsletter, Jay. Uh, the one that I've got lined up for, for this week is a base metals pick. It's a current uh, producer. They have extensive operations. Uh, they just completed an expansion and an upgrade at their uh, processing plant that will allow this company to increase production, uh, improve their operating margins, and, and ultimately increase their earnings. Uh, they also have two late-stage uh, development prospects in the pipeline that will provide the, the, the next level of growth. And I look for value. I don't uh, want to chase a stock that's already trading at an all-time high. Uh, this company is actually trading at about a 60% discount from its highs that it achieved a couple of years ago when it had a, a lower production uh, overall um, uh, platform. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more value there now. The price is cheaper and the company is much stronger, and it's exactly the type of stock that I like to, uh, to participate in. Excellent, Mike. Well, we'll look forward to finding out which company that is in our newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, which, by the way, folks, you can subscribe to. Go to miningstocks.com or call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, good to have you with us, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Folks, 
Don't go away. We've got to go to commercial break, but coming back, uh, when we come back, we're going to have Dr. Gary Schilling with us. Gary has written an excellent book titled The Age of Deleveraging. This is a topic I think that is very, very important uh, for investors to understand. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Gary Schilling. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and it is really an honor to have with me today Dr. Gary Schilling. He is the president of A. Gary Schilling and Company, Inc. Uh, most anyone who tunes in to Bloomberg Television or radio or other major media outlets uh, know Dr. Schilling, have certainly heard of him, but because his background is so impressive, I want to just uh, note some of the things that this highly respected independent thinking economist has achieved over his lifetime. He... Uh, uh, his background, uh, he, he's received his bachelor's degree in physics from Amherst College, uh, where he uh, graduated magna cum laude. He received his Ph.D. in economics from Stanford University. And while on the West Coast, he served uh, on the staff of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and the Bank of America. At age 29, he set up the economics department at Merrill Lynch, where he served as the firm's first economist, uh, chief economist, and earlier he was uh, with Standard Oil uh, Company, New Jersey, where he was in charge of uh, U.S. and Canadian economic analysis and forecasting. But above all, I think of Dr. Schilling as one of a handful of brilliant independent mainstream economists uh, who are really, and I underscore the word independent, many, if not most, of the economists we see on television sort of just really repeat uh, mainstream propaganda, I think, that's put out for somebody's benefit, perhaps uh, the commercial, the people who are sponsoring the shows. Uh, but starting with the days when he was uh, an economist with Merrill Lynch, he stood up to his boss at that time, uh, Ron, uh, Donald Regan, uh, when he forecast a recession in 1969. It didn't really fit with that company's marketing propaganda, which uh, talked about Merrill Lynch being bullish on America. There certainly was a lot of reason to be bullish on America in those days, but uh, Dr. Shields saw some clouds ahead, and he 
spoke his mind and it cost him his job. We need, uh, I think we need more people these days, like Dr. Schilling. Uh, uh, he provides a refreshingly independent view of the world, uh, and that makes him worth listening to, in my view. And I really believe, and I uh, really can't emphasize this enough, The Age of Deleveraging is an excellent read. It's an easy read. It's not a few pages. It's uh, oh, 500 pages or so. But it's a, it's a very easy, readable book, and I would highly recommend uh, that you uh, purchase a copy and read it. So welcome, Dr. Schilling. It's really a great honor to have you with me. Oh, it's my pleasure indeed, and uh, thanks for that splendid introduction. Well, I think I'm it's flattered. Good. Well, you don't need to be because I think it's, it's very deserved, and uh, I have been, you know, I, I don't know how many mornings, maybe I've heard you with Thomas Keene, uh, on Bloomberg in the morning, my wife and I have breakfast, listen to the show, and, and you're on there every now and then. It's always it's one of those things, you know, where you say, oh, uh, turn the mute button off. It's, uh, it's, this guy's worth listening to. Uh, I really loved your chapter one in your book, Spotting Bubbles. And bubbles, you know, they're, they're a lot of fun while they last. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, people had a lot of fun during the dot-com bubble. They had a lot of fun during the housing bubble. Um, in the introduction of your book, you note that bubbles were fueled by massive financial leveraging and excessive debt, first in the global financial sector starting in the 1970s and later among U.S. consumers. Well, do you see the U.S. as having been, uh, this, this big bubble that we're in now, as having really started all the way back in the 70s? And, and if so, how would you rate the size of this bubble compared with some of the other great bubbles in history? Um. It, it's it's hard to it's hard to compare them because the nature is always different and it isn't as though you can come down to some quantification. Uh, but I, I I do think you you sort of look at them in terms of the of the uh, extent to which the whole country is is sucked in. Uh, and, and I would say that that the dot com bubble we had in the in the nineties and then even more so the housing bubble in the last decade. They probably rival what we had in stocks in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1920s, everybody followed the market, but only about 4% of the populace owned stocks, believe it or not. it was Now it's about 50% owned stocks or mutual mm-hmm. funds, but it was a very small percentage. But everybody followed it. Everybody was aware of what was going on on Wall Street. So it's, it's more that kind of thing, the total awareness, the total extent to which this influences behavior. Because when stocks were going up then, when dot-com... Uh, was exploding and uh, socks was everybody's hero in the 90s and when house prices were zooming and everybody could get aboard uh, those things had huge nationwide implications well beyond the direct participants mm-hmm. becomes a mania something that you just have to do because it's going up and there's no logic or, or reason to buying them it's just that you it, there's going to be a greater fool out there that's going to pay more right well that that's absolutely right and of course by definition a bubble exists because people are willing to believe, uh, well, the willful suspension of disbelief uh, uh, is the way you can put it. I think Coleridge said that about literary criticism, but it applies to financial uh, mania as well. And, uh, well, there's a tulip bubble, dot-coms, housing, uh, stocks, it doesn't make much difference. It's a time when everybody everybody believes that things are, are going up. And, of course, every bubble has a rationale there there is something that uh, touches it off i mean mm-hmm. you know dot com stocks hey the internet is a very powerful force and things related to it are are still very much with us and growing uh but what happens is that 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 kernel of truth that basis of it is long lost in the in the hype 
in the conviction that everything is going up. Why? Because it's going up. And mm. it isn't even that people uh, have succumbed to explicitly the, the greater fool uh, thesis. They don't say, well, who are you going to sell it to, a greater yeah. fool than I? They don't even think about that. They think, well, this is just going up. It's justified. And sure, why shouldn't I buy this at 100 times earnings? Or if there are no earnings, why not 100 times revenue? And if there's no <laughs> revenue, why not just on the basis of a business plan? And that's really what happened during the dot-com bubble. Yeah, we were looking at uh, clicks or or uh, eyeballs, oh, yeah, or, right. you know, things like that. They started to measure the the metrics were really bit uh, really stretching it. Well, then we come to the point, don't we, Doctor uh, Doctor Schiller, where where we run into the time when there's no no more buyers, right? And well, then the yeah, and that's by definition that that's the peak of a bubble is where everybody who can be sucked in has been sucked in. So you've got no more uh, potential buyers. You only have potential sellers. And the reverse of two is as at the bottoms, but you get to that point where it simply runs out of steam. And sometimes there are explicit trigger mechanisms, but often they just sort of collapse of their own weight. I mean, the housing bubble, you can say, well, in February of 2007, uh, a couple of things happened. Uh, uh, New Century, which is one of the big mortgage lenders that people could borrow money for with literally nothing down, uh, it reported a, a bad uh, fourth quarter in, in February of 07, and, and that was a real wake-up call, uh, certainly for anybody who had a suspicion that this thing was a, a, a big bubble. And uh, we, saw, we saw subprime mortgages decline. But the interesting thing is that it, it takes more punishment than just the initial decline to convince participants that the game is over. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I can remember last back then, and we were – very much uh, forecasting the demise of the bubble. We spotted it uh, on the way up because things were just out of hand. People back in 2002, 2003 who couldn't afford chicken coops were in four-bedroom houses. <laughs> I said, this is nonsense. But when it started down, it was fascinating because I remember getting all kinds of flack from the majority of, of uh, people who were, who were bullish, and they said, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's subprime mortgages. They're only 5% of total mortgages, mm-hmm. and after all, those are loans to people that luckily I'll never have to meet. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and even when it spread to the rest of the housing sector, people say, well, that's only 6% of GDP, uh, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't realize the extent to which Wall Street was all tangled up in the financing of this, and it was literally going to almost take down Wall Street except for the uh, government bailouts. Right. Well, going back to the start of this, do you see then, you know, you mentioned two bubbles, the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble, but do you see an accumulation of bubbles the, uh, of which the air has not been entirely let out, uh, building up over decades? I think in your book you talk about uh, starting in 1970, the, the issues starting up at that time. Uh, did um, Do you see this as accumulation of bubbles and that we're still in one grand bubble that needs to be popped yet? I'm I'm not sure of that. Of course, of course, part of this you never see until you're you can look at it in retrospect. But but right now, I, I think we are unwinding the bubbles. And the two that that I think were the greatest this time around, uh, well, well, it was a housing bubble, mm-hmm. and and that was really part of the whole leveraging up of the consumer uh, in this country. And the other one was the financial bubble, the financial institutions that were going from twenty times leverage. In other words, they're their total uh, debt was about 20 times their equity. They went from that to 40 times, just mm. really exploded that. This is the banks and the brokerage houses, mm-hmm. the investment banks uh, here and, and throughout the world. 
And right now we're on the deleveraging side of that. Hence the title of my book, The Age of Deleveraging. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not, I, I don't think there's sort of a grand uh, a bubble buildup here. Fortunately, and I guess you'd have to say that, fortunately, these things are, are being deflated. Uh, well, two of them at the, at the current time, but we don't have the dot-com nonsense anymore. Uh, uh, we don't have some of the earlier bubbles in, uh, in computers and other things that have come along over time. So uh, right now we're dealing with two, but that's enough to cause a lot of problems for the economy here and abroad for, I think, another five to seven years. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly I know in your latest newsletter you spent a lot of time talking about the housing sector, and you don't think we're anywhere nearly... Uh, through that yet, and I, I gather in just in just reading over parts of your letter that uh, that it's the government intervention that's keeping the markets from really getting back to to some sort of equilibrium. Did I am I reading you right? Yeah, that that that's absolutely true. Uh, uh, the the big contrast is between now, when despite the recognition that that uh, that housing is is no longer a, a quick route to riches, and the attitude toward it, I think, is changing, but still there are tremendous efforts. By the administration, uh, by the by uh, the Fed, and by even the courts, to keep people in houses they really can't afford, and to and to delay the correction. And the the interesting contrast you can see it vividly when you when you look or recall at what happened with the savings and loans two decades ago, and that ultimately brought in they ran through their uh, insurance pool money. It was equivalent to the FDIC, mm-hmm. and they had to set up what was called the Resolution Trust Corporation to uh, clean it up. It cost taxpayers about $160 billion, which mm-hmm. then was real money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point is that they approached that uh, very, very uh, intelligently. They basically uh, sold the properties, sold the buildings. It was largely commercial. It wasn't housing where mm-hmm. you've got this American dream, everybody deserves their house. Uh, that that impedes the clearing of the market, but they sold the properties. They knocked down the prices to levels that were just so low that the next move was going to be up. They didn't wait for them to deteriorate. Abandoned buildings where vagrants move in, the copper piping is stripped out. They deteriorate. All the problems that we're going through with housing. So, if you look at it now, the way we're doing with housing is the way not to do it in an economic sense. But there still is a, a kind of rear guard action among uh, politicians and, and a lot of individuals who just think that uh, throwing somebody out of a house, even though they made a very foolhardy decision, thought they could basically buy the house, put down nothing, refinance it before they even had any mortgage payments due, and basically live there rent-free indefinitely. Uh, the term now for that is squatter's rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so it's a politically charged issue now. It's, I mean, politically more difficult to let the markets... Uh, work this out than it was with the SNL crisis, I guess. That's correct. That's yeah. correct because it is more housing. That was more commercial uh, real estate, and and commercial real estate has has periodic cycles, and it's sort of assumed that those are professional investors, institutions, and they're big boys and girls. There isn't that feeling of somehow people are being victimized. But uh, you know, to to me, any as I say, anybody who expects free lunch. Uh, you know, I, I, he's going to learn the hard way that there is no such thing. And and uh, but uh, there are a lot of a lot of aspects of what the government's doing that are trying to bail people out and avoid them facing reality. Right. Yeah. Well, in the long run, that can't be good for us. Uh, in the short run, I guess it, it probably allows some politicians to stay in to stay in office a little longer, uh, and and maybe some other 
people in the banking industry to uh, who made foolish decisions or at least were interested in making some quick bucks and put people in right. homes. They, they should. Well, have as a matter of fact, our our um, our February our, our February edition of our of our newsletter uh, Insight, um, which is just out, just uh, just went out uh, yesterday. As a matter of fact, um, it, it addresses itself to the whole housing to the whole housing area and points out in detail how all these government programs uh, that go by the acronyms HAMP and HARP and, and all these, and the, uh, the Obama administration, in effect, just added to one, extended one of these uh, programs called HARP uh, that only covered mortgages that were insured by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to those that were not insured. But, but that HARP program itself had been a, had been a disaster. I mean, it just, uh, it, you know, they start off with these things they, they think like, like HAMP. They said it's going to aid three or four million people, and so far it's, it's been about 700,000, and yeah. that thing has been running since 2009. It yeah. just, uh, you know, people don't qualify, they drop out, they don't, uh, they don't meet the mortgage payments even after they reduce their interest rates, mm-hmm. extend their, uh, repayment period to, to reduce the monthly payments, and even reduce the principal. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so these things. I mean, a lot of a lot of people there. The thing you got to realize: a lot of people, unless you basically removed all mortgage payments, they could not stay in their house. They just don't have the money. They're so indebted otherwise to even make those monthly payments. And let me say, by the way, if anybody is interested in our newsletter, uh, learning more about it, we do have a toll-free number. It's one eight 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 three four six. Seven four four four. Excellent. I was going to ask you, Gary, about that. And uh, is there a website where people can also? Yeah, yeah. Our website is uh, www.agaryshilling.com. A G A R Y S H I L L I N G. Fantastic. I'm I'm glad you got that in there because people should avail themselves to to your newsletter. Uh, so I, I want to ask you though. Gary, you've been successful in picking some big bubbles and, and you know, seeing them coming. Uh, for example, 1969-70 recession, the early right, 1970s right. inventory bubble and the 1973-75 recession, and disinflation in the 80s. I mean, uh, the demise of Japan's bubble in the 80s, the dot-com blow-off and, and the housing bubble, uh, the financial bubble. These were all things that you were able to see coming and so many on mainstream, in the mainstream, were not, including Alan Greenspan, who says you can't know a bubble until you're out of it, until it, until it implodes. Right. What, what, you know, what has allowed you to find and to discern these major bubbles coming upon us? I mean, is it is it uh, just there, that the establishment? There, there are several factors there. I interest? think one is uh, that we're an independent uh, economic consultant. Right, uh, and we, we're we're not part of a big bank. We don't have any access to grind. We don't have a charter to be uh, continually bullish. Now, of course, that's that's something as you pointed out earlier. I learned the hard way at Merrill Lynch <laughs> when I got fired by Don Regan, then the CEO, because uh, I thought I was there to forecast what I thought was going to happen, not to not to uh, paint it with a rosy. Uh, rosy colors, regardless. Well, you uh, were but we're an independent and organization, so there's you, we don't have any. We don't have any biases because uh, to preserve uh, employment. Uh, secondly, I think it's it's really the nature of the of the individual calling the shots, and in this case, it's obviously me. Uh, and and I'm I'm one of those folks that just by quirky nature, I guess, uh, I I'm perfectly comfortable going against the crowd. 
and and what we're always looking for in in these bubbles and it falls under the rubric I call great calls, and I talk about that in detail in this book, The Age of Deleveraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, we're looking for something that is important. It can't be trivial or something that's going to be revised out of existence right. with the next month's statistics, obviously. Secondly, it's got to have a good chance of happening. In other words, I'm not taking a contrary view for the sake of notoriety. Ultimately, you're judged by your forecasting record. Sure. And so uh, picking the winners is very important, not just going against the herd. But the third thing is... If it does meet the two previous requirements, it's important. It's got a good chance of happening, and it is outside the purview of the herd. It's against the consensus. That's the kind of thing we're looking for, and bubbles fit into that category uh, invariably because uh, bubbles are, are, are always, uh, they're always exciting. They're always bullish. People are making money. Everybody's having fun. And the idea of, of, of raining on the parade is it's just very unwelcome. But you've got to you've got to somehow uh, be the type of personality that's that's willing to take those uh, contrary positions and feel very comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, now you know it, it's not always not always helpful. I mean, uh, I'll go we'll go to a cocktail party and and uh, my wife cringes because somebody will say, "Isn't it a beautiful yellow moon, moon tonight?" And I'll say, "You sure it isn't green?" I mean, you know, <laughs> I can I get I get in trouble with this with this kind of natural quirky personality, but I but I happen to end up in a in a uh, profession where it is it is useful and i've been able to put it to uh, to good effect for a number of years well absolutely you have and of course another quirky aspect of you is that you are a bee farmer i believe and we won't have time to talk about that yeah today, i'm but, a beekeeper just so <laughs> yeah, and that know, also takes uh, a certain amount of oriness and willing to just get stung four or five hundred times a year <laughs> So, so you are unique in more ways than one, Gary. So it's uh, that's that's why we want to talk to you. Uh, so, do you think that? So, I, I gathered from what you said that you're not really terribly worried about any more major plunges, a la post Lehman Brothers. Uh, I would no, I, I wouldn't put it quite that uh, definitively. I, I do think that we're we're entering a global recession. Europe has a combination of a. Uh, the financial crisis, of course, which is spilled over to the real economy, the goods and services economy. And so I think they're in for a major recession, which will rival the downturn they had in 0709 and, and we had back then when we had the combination of both a financial crisis and a goods and services inflation. Uh, China on the other side of the world, I think, is, is in a hard landing meaning its growth is going to drop from double digits back to 5 or 6%, and it needs 8% just to accommodate all the newcomers in the labor force. But they, they have been tightening up to deal with inflation and a real estate bubble, which in turn was created by excess stimulus back in '09, which was a reaction to the recession. Right. Uh, but in any event, they're trying to cool it off. They have very crude tools to do so. And also, their exports, on which they are highly dependent for growth, are starting to slacken off with the weakness in Europe and the U.S. Uh, if they don't have, if they don't have uh, their trading partners growing, they're not buying their exports. The other guys' imports, and so China's going to have that hard landing, and that really is, I think, been anticipated by the decline in commodity prices. But the U.S., the third leg in the stool, I'm looking for a moderate recession because recession uh, consumers have been spending at a much higher rates than their incomes justify. Mm-hmm. Their, their saving rate has been going down lately. Their borrowing rate's going up. I think they're under tremendous pressure to do the reverse, to rebuild their saving, their, their net worth, their assets, and to cut down on their debt. 
Mm-hmm. Now, if consumers retrench, we get a moderate recession, then you've got a global recession. But I'm coming to your, your question, mm-hmm. uh, your point, and that is, are we, do we have another big leg down, mm-hmm. a, a Lehman kind of thing? Maybe. But if it happens, it will probably be because they spill over from Europe. Right. And it's the intertwining of the banks. It's the, uh, what they call the counterparty, der- counterparty risk. It's who's on the other side of all these derivatives. In right. other words, if these things really fall apart, who's stuck with it? We saw that, of course, earlier when AIG, the big insurance company, uh, was stuck with an awful lot of this stuff, and they had to be basically bailed out by, uh, by the Fed, by the government. Uh, and, 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 and that's the risk. And nobody really, these things are so complicated and so many wraps around the, around the Maypole. Nobody knows, uh, who owes what to whom ultimately. And that's the, that's the risk. And, uh, it's, it's, it's an open-ended question. I'm not forecasting it to happen, but it certainly could. Yeah. Well, Gary, you, uh, as I understand it, are really still projecting or predicting a two to three percent actual decline in prices across the board, I believe. Uh, over the next several years until this bubble is finally works its way out and all the air is left out of it. At the, on the other hand, you know, we've had quantitative easing one and two and, and all kinds of um, intervention, deficit spending. We ha- we're still spending a heck of a lot of money for, for uh, military uh, engagements around the world. Um, you know, we're running deficits like never before. All these Keynesian stimulative uh, policies uh, haven't seemed to work too well, but yet there is this sort of view among a lot of economists, certainly people uh, that we talk to, some people we talk to on this show that are gold-orientated are, are, you know, fearing that we're going to have some kind of major inflationary event. Uh, and yet you look at the at these balance sheets, as you point out, they have to be delivered because the debt just simply cannot be repaid. Why, I mean, how do you reconcile this? Because, you know, the notion that you print money, create money uh, in the minds of some people lead automatically to inflation. I don't buy it because in the yeah. 1930s it didn't work. Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a widespread concern, uh, obviously, because of everything the Fed and the, and the government has been doing. If you look at the Fed, uh, they've attempted to put, uh, to, 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 create, to create economic activity through buying treasury and mortgage-backed securities. And the Fed doesn't print money. The Fed creates reserves. And it's up to the uh-huh. banks as lenders and the creditworthy borrowers to turn those reserves into money, into checking accounts. The bank lends the money. Somebody borrows it. They, how do they, what do they get? They get an increase in their checking account. That gives them funds to go out and spend. That has not been happening. The banks are scared to lend. They only want to lend to the very, very best credit risk. And, and uh, those people, both institutions and individuals, are repaying debt mm-hmm. and incurring more. Uh, they have plenty of cash. So what is happening is all it's done is pile up excess reserves. In other words, money that the that the member banks could use to support a lot of loans, uh, they've simply piled up. The required reserves right now are about seventy billion. The total reserves are one point six trillion. Hmm. In other words, they've they piled up a trillion and a half excess reserves. Mm-hmm. Now you can argue that sooner or later those are going to be a a, a, a problem that. At, that they'll turn into loans and, and support too much activity, strain resources, you get inflation. But uh, I think the Fed is, is enough scared of, of inflation that if that were to happen, and I don't see it happening for a number of years, and the Fed doesn't either. They've said mm-hmm. they're not going to do anything on rates through 2014. But mm-hmm. if that were to happen, I think the Fed, and Bernanke has laid this out, the chairman, 
they would be yanking those reserves in, which they can do very simply. They just sell off treasuries from their portfolio. They can get rid of those reserves overnight. So I don't think that is really a threat. Now, if we turn to the uh, the fiscal side, the federal government, what's interesting there is all, despite all the borrowing that's being done and the deficits which have run up, uh, you know, close to a trillion and a half, they're a little below that now, if you look at the totality of this, that that the borrowing by the federal government has offset less than the half of the deleveraging of the paying off debt and so on of the private sector. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, despite all the huge deficits, the result they've offset less than less than fifty percent of the of the repayment of debt of withdrawal, the deleveraging mm-hmm. in the private sector, and of course that's why the economy remains relatively weak. Mm-hmm. Because all this money has, has simply been offset by the private sector, mm-hmm. and I think that will probably continue to be the case because at the rate we're going on the deleveraging of consumers, the financial sector, uh, it will take us, as I mentioned earlier, another five to seven years to get the whole excesses undone. Mm-hmm. Just simply as as the debt has worked off balance sheets to something more normal. I know in looking at total debt, not just uh, U.S. government debt, but total debt to GDP, it's sort of at record levels, far far above, I believe, where it was even in 1932 or 30. Oh, yeah, 30. and I, uh, interestingly enough, and just by coincidence, uh, when I was at Stanford, I did my Ph.D. thesis on the relationship between uh, between uh, borrowing uh, in the economy and, and the size of the economy, GDP. Uh-huh. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, at that point, the high-water mark was, was back in the, in the 20s, uh, and even World War II didn't get back to that, but it's been exceeded subsequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if I'm looking, remembering a chart I've seen recently, it, it sort of ranged during the better times before we got into all this trouble, something like 125 to 175 percent. Right. And and then, uh, you know, but in, in the 1930s, it was, I don't know, 225 or something like that, but more recently, over 300 percent. So right. do we have to get back? Yeah, in the some... 30s, it was... It, you know, it's, it's a ratio, so sure. uh, if uh, if GDP is going down, which happened in the 30s, then the ratio goes up. Right. It wasn't a matter of increasing debt. It was just reducing the denominator the GDP. Right. Uh, the big debt run-up was in the 20s, and I sort of right. look at the 30s as a kind of a, a separate animal. Yeah, the 30s was a cleansing of the debt or, or getting it off the balance sheet. Yeah, ultimately, much as, right. Much as we're going through now, perhaps, huh? Right, right. Over time. Right. So we need to get back to some sort of normal debt level where incomes, where it makes some sense, where people can, can service their debt. And that's what, what has to happen before there's any chance of, of inflation, I believe, if I understand well, you. Well, that, that's right. And, and, and one, one more important thing on this is that there is this constant hope that there is a magic bullet. If you listen to the media... If you read the financial press, radio, TV, commentators, whatever, they're always asking uh, commentators, people like me, uh, well, what do they need to do in Washington? What's going to get us out of this? <laughs> and, of course, I simply say nothing but time. It's just yeah. a matter of working off these excesses. Right. And, and, and the idea that there is this magic bullet, this, this uh, savior, this saving the deck, I, I just don't think exists. And, right. and, and uh, I, I think that as long as people are searching for that, they're, they're missing the point that this is a slow workout. And, by the way, it's a good thing that it is a slow workout. If we had all this excess debt worked off in, say, a year or two, yeah. We have a depression on our hands that would make the 30s look like a Sunday school picnic. Right. Yeah, I would I would think so given the debt to to GDP. And again, that ratio went up this time without GDP collapsing. That's that, absolutely correct. Yeah. I said, "Oh yeah, it was all on the debt side." 
yeah. all on the Dutch side, and yeah. and uh, most people were enjoying every every bit of it, every last yeah. morsel. Well, Gary, we only have about a minute left here, and I want to ask you then: uh, What are you telling your your subscribers, your clients, to invest in right now? What sort of general things should they be in? What should they stay away from? Well, our, as a matter of fact, our, our January newsletter um, lists twenty investment strategies for for this year. And by the way, that follows last year where we had nineteen recommendations, and and fifteen of the nineteen uh, were successful. Yep. Many of those, as a result, we've we've carried over to this year. But uh, for one thing, we we think there's still opportunities in long-term treasury bonds, yes. not for yield, but for further appreciation as rates go down. I think thirty-year uh, uh, bond yield now thirty now three percent will go down to two and a half, and that would that would make you about ten percent on a coupon bond, twelve percent on a zero coupon bond. Uh, I like income-producing securities. Well, there's high-quality. Uh, high-quality corporate bonds or utilities or other companies that pay high, meaningful, and rising dividends. I like the dollar. I think it's a safe haven, particularly against the, the euro, but other, but commodity currencies as well. If we have a hard landing in China and the commodity bubble goes away, and that is a bubble. By the way, I like rental apartments. Uh, people are deciding that apartments are, are the place to be, that uh, that owning a house is no longer a, a sure route to riches. Prices can and do decline for the first time since the 30s. Right. I like North American energy, uh, not the renewables. They take too much government subsidy. But like, for example, natural gas, prices yeah. are going down, but they still are producing it. They want the natural gas liquids. They need to drill up uh, the, the formations before they lose their leases. So the pipelines, okay, pipelines are the way we're handling it in our portfolios. Gary, I wish I'd have asked you the question a little earlier. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've got to okay, go. Maybe we can do it later. Oh, I'd love to. Love to have you back. And folks, and your and your website once more, Gary. Yeah, it's uh, www.agaryshilling.com. A G A R Y S H I L L I N G. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Schilling, for being with us. Folks, don't go away because uh, after the break, we're going to be back with John Williams. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
at miningstocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.